Okay, we're coming back to our series called Nobody's Perfect. We're working through the book of Colossians. Uh, took a, a bit of a break last week, but we are back into it for this week. And we have to, uh, we have to deal with a very important question because we've, we've been talking about some really important ideas and themes and kind of big picture stuff, sometimes some abstract things. And today I want to take on the question, what if my life isn't changing? What if, hey, this is all great, we've learned some, some wonderful things, we'll go review in one second, but what if I'm still dealing with the same temptations that I've always been dealing with? What if I still have the same challenges? What if I don't feel like I'm growing? What if I feel like uh, nothing in my life is really moving forward? I'm just kind of going on and on. So let's do a little bit of review where we've been in this series and talk about it. Um, we started by talking about nobody's perfect, but everyone can mature. So that's where we started. We looked at some of these terms in the scriptures that talk about us being perfect, and we go, wow, I'm not perfect. And we go, actually, nobody's perfect. Maybe a better way to see that is, is that we, we're not perfect, but we can all mature. We all have the opportunity to mature and to grow. And then we took a week and we talked about how empty religion and willpower is not going to work for us. Uh, tribalism, this idea of, of creating elite groups that make us feel good, don't actually have the power to change our lives. Um, these ideas of just trying harder and of creating tribal groups of in and out really don't change our hearts, don't have power to change our hearts. Um, So even if we're trying really hard, we still might come up with that problem. We'll say, well, but I'm still not changing. I'm just working really hard. In fact, you might feel defeated. I'm trying really hard and it's not working. And then we talked about some positive ways that we can move forward. We need to be nourished by God's grace, realize that everything that we have is a gift. We talked about what it means to be in Christ, that in Christ we have everything that we need, and God has given us everything. We talked about building our identity on God's love, that we have to kind of drill down deeper and ask ourselves who we are, and then rest in the fact that God has given us our identity. He's loved us, even if we think we're not lovable, and that we need to live lives that overflow in gratitude, that gratitude and thankfulness is so so powerful in changing our outlook and our attitude and uh, even our character as we go forward. So today I want to get even more practical. I want to build off of some of those ideas. And especially if you say to yourself, as I think all of us do at some point in our lives, man, there's things in my life that I know should be changing, but I've been dealing with over and over and over. My temptations, my character flaws, uh, the things I, weren't, I wish weren't there. How do we deal with those? And one of the things I want you to take away today is this. The reason we don't change is not because we need to be more like someone else, but because we need to be more like ourselves. There is a trap where some of us think, what I need to change, the problem is I need to be like a different person. I need to be somebody else. And actually, there's a lot of theologies that have spoken into us. Some of us, we've had some of this theology drilled into us so deeply, maybe for your entire lives, if you've been in certain uh, religious environments, that you're unworthy, that you're no good, that you can't do anything good. And I understand where those things come from, because in Scripture, it talks often about sin. It talks about how we have this nature to us that uh, is is sinful. Uh, But sometimes the way that that has been plugged into us and the way that it's gone so deep into our minds and even in our hearts, We sometimes feel stuck to say, and I can't change, and there's nothing that I can do. So then we come to some of these passages, like in Colossians, that we've read about over the last few weeks, where it says, in Christ, you have everything that you need. And we'll look at today, since in Christ, you've been raised to a new life, and it seems so foreign to us and so difficult for us to receive and to think we could actually change and grow and have our lives be different. And so today, that's kind of what I want to focus on and talk about how we can really practically live that out such that we can see change in our lives 
lives, that we can allow God to transform our character and therefore our behavior, and that we can see a difference in our life going forward. So we're in Colossians chapter 3. would love for you, if you have a Bible, to follow along, read along. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. And uh, we're going to start reading right at the beginning of the chapter. And it says, since, and that's really important, um, since, what we're going to read now is absolutely pivotal to, um, you know, what's going to come next. We've got to build a foundation. Since this is true, and we're going to come later, then something else can be true. So, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Very important. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. There's a couple of key terms here. Again, we're going to get into as we work through this passage today. But it talks about setting your sights here. Setting your sights on... on, uh, things of heaven. Um, it means to seek after, to seek for, to aim at, to strive after. It, uh, the next verse talks about think about. Verse 2 says think about the things of heaven. Uh, that means to direct one's mind or again to seek or strive for. They're very similar concepts. And I point that out just to say this. Sometimes we start with this foundation of grace that God has given us our life. And that's what this says. Your life is in Christ. This identity that you've been given has been forged by Christ that you're loved before you did anything to be lovable, that there's actually nothing for you to strive for, to prove, or to earn. That's something, those are things that are already given to your identity because that's God's prerogative to choose you, to love you. He's already done that. Your life is caught up in Christ. But we also see that since that is true, it doesn't mean that you don't have a participation in that. You don't have a part in that. It doesn't mean that in the spiritual life there's no effort required, that there's nothing that you can do. Uh, Dallas Willard was famous for saying um, that, that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And so it means that it doesn't mean that we're trying to earn anything from God, but it also doesn't mean that we don't put effort into our spiritual life or our growth. And what we actually see is these, these words, these phrases telling us, here's some things you can do to participate in your spiritual growth. And the since is important because since God has done all this for you, since your life is hidden in Christ, since he's given you resurrection and life. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Since what has happened to Christ when he died on the cross and was raised to a new life, is now true for him. It's also true for you. You receive that. That's true for me. Empty religion, all the accusations of guilt and shame that come against you can't kill you. They can't, they can't put you in jail anymore, spiritually speaking. This is now a gift given to you. You're in Christ as you receive that. But since that's true, well, here's how you can participate. You can seek and strive for certain things. You can set your mind on heavenly things. And when we talk about heavenly things and earthly things, we're not talking here about heavenly things or just the spiritual way out there have no application to life and earthly things or the physical things. That's not what they're talking about. Um, but it's talking about this new resurrection life that's offered to us in Christ that you can now strive and search and be part of that participating in. So to be clear, you have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, but also we can see that that doesn't mean there's no effort involved. You are to set your sights and set your mind on the realities of heaven, the reality of that new life. And as we do that, we should see change and transformation in our life. And by the way, this is all a gift of grace. Again, we participate in it, but this is all God's wonderful gift for us in his life. 
So now we're going to go into a couple of very practical things, I hope, today that help us to do that. Verse 5, it says, so, and notice the very strong language right off the beginning of this verse. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. That reminder over and over and over. This is our foundation. It's about Christ in us and us in Christ, both ways. Christ is in us, empowering us, uh, living inside of us, giving us everything that we need. We are in Christ. We are part of his identity, that what has happened to him now has been given to us graciously, that we are loved and approved of and cared for through the forgiveness and grace of God. Beautiful. But Paul says in verse 5, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. It's really strong language. He says, kill what's killing you. You got to kill what's killing you. And you say, oh, these things are killing me, really? Uh, that's very strong language. Well, that's kind of the point. He goes, put to death. He says, don't just kind of play around. Uh, don't just say, I'm going to try harder not to do these things. He says, put to death the sinful earthly things inside of you. And in this passage that we just read, he then gives examples, and I don't think it's a comprehensive list of things that he might talk about. We could probably come up with more things. But interesting that he brings up three areas of our lives that we have a very difficult time growing in. These are things that we often will feel stuck in uh, three different ways. Uh, three different uh, areas of our lives where we go, these are very hard to control. So he talks about sex, he talks about money, and he talks about anger. That's not bad, right? If you go, hey, what are the areas 2,000 years later that we still seem to struggle in our lives with to get over, uh, to grow through, to become more mature in, to become um, more like Jesus in? Well, sex, money, and anger, probably most of us, one, two, or three would go, I've been there, I am there, this is a struggle for me. Uh, these are hard areas where we find oftentimes our desires and our characters fall short of maybe where we hope we would be or wish we would be. So let's talk about how maybe we can see transformation in our life from what Paul's writing to these people, uh, the Colossians. So let's start with sex. Uh, let's look at the list that's connected with sex. He, he starts with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality for Paul, for Jesus, the New Testament is a pretty broad term that would have covered a lot of things uh, around behavior, sexual behavior that was not permitted. Uh, things like adultery, but it would have been, a, again, a pretty broad these are the behaviors that are, are kind of not, um, not permitted in terms of our sexual lives. Then he goes down uh, another level and he talks about impurity. And impurity would talk not just about a behavior, but now would talk about our character. So that layer under your behavior of kind of who you are and what maybe even feels natural to you to live out of. This is the character that undergirds your behavior. And then he talks about lust. 
And lust would be maybe these uncontrolled urges or desires. It would be the thoughts, the fantasies, the things that you allow to, to go, you know, maybe you're, you're feasting on in a sense that, that are in your mind, that are in your heart, um, that kind of lead or, or are connected to uh, the character and the behavior parts. This is the, I'm already thinking it and, and I'm entertaining it. Maybe even I'm planning certain things in my mind. Now, of course, we live in a very different time uh, from when this was written, and we might say, Paul is saying, wow, put to death, kill all of these things all the way down uh, to lust, not just behavior, but character, and even those urges. And uh, it might be that many of us in our culture would go, what's the big problem here? Um, we are kind of products, I probably don't have to get into it, but we are products of the sexual revolution. On the other side of that, things are very different from us. We live uh, in a time and a place uh, where, where sex is very much celebrated in, in uh, vi- like just about every form, not all of them, certainly, but many of them. Uh, easy uh, to consume, uh, either casual sex or even kind of those lustful things in terms of pornography makes it very easy for us. And for Jesus and for Paul here, sex is something that is, is thought to be highly relational, the most, the most intimate of uh, human relationships and uh, actions in sex um, more than anything else, deeply connected to things like commitment and character and even to our spirit, that we can't just uh, separate out what's happening with our body and what's happening with our spirit. And so it's not just a physical act or physical urges uh, for them. Uh, It's not just, therefore, arbitrary rules and God saying, well, this is going to be tough for you, so I'm going to make rules around it. Uh, It's not about being prudish. It's not about shutting things down. Um, It is about what is healthy and what is not so healthy. So the last thing he talks about is he goes through sexual immorality, impurity, lust. Then he comes down to what is translated here as evil desires. Now, this is actually a term that's very difficult to translate from Greek into English, and I would say evil evil desires probably isn't the best term for it because what it makes it sound like is, um, you know, we come all the way down from the behavior, then the character, and then even these urges, and then you've got these desires that are bad. And sometimes uh, in, um, certainly in religious circumstances and environments, sometimes we walk away with those kind of things and saying, well, I have sexual urges. They must be bad. I must be a bad person, and I've got to suppress those and whatever. They're evil. They're bad. This word actually is better translated uh, inordinate desires or these overwhelming desires, things that uh, I have desires that I can't control. And that's what we're talking about. And that's important because I think throughout scriptures, what we have to realize is that sex is a very good thing that you're supposed to have sexual urges, that that's a healthy thing, that that's a good thing. It's even a beautiful thing. And that is something that you, you should have as part of your life. It's a good thing. What we're talking about here is not, oh, if you've got sexual urges, those are bad, those are evil. You don't walk away thinking that. Even those urges, they're supposed to be strong. That's part of a good, healthy view of sexuality. But we don't want our urges to take over our lives. Here we're talking about, but what, is, what happens when we can't control these urges? What if this is too much for us? What if this is overwhelming for us? And so maybe a good example for us, uh, sort of in, in our lives um, and in our culture of where this happens is we see uh, pornography. Uh, we see that it's very common for people to say it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Everybody watches it. Um, you know, it's not that bad. What we're finding out now is there's more and more availability of those things. We made it so easy on every device and 
everywhere we go to access it. Um, what we're finding out now from all kinds of research that's coming out, and this is not from Christian research or religious circles, uh, this is just a scientific community going, oh, we're finding out that there's a lot of problems with that. We're finding out that continued use of pornography is actually putting up barriers physically and psychologically for people to be intimate with another person. We've taken the relationship part, the relational aspect, uh, out of sexuality when we're in this, uh, when we're in this mode. Uh, we find that um, it's then very difficult for some people down the road uh, to really actually connect sexually with another human being. It's become something personal. Uh, we've, there's lots of evidence that people that work in that industry, there's a ton of abuse and exploitation, and that it's highly addictive for people. And so people get to the point where they go, and now if I wanted to stop, I can't stop. This has become an overwhelming and inordinate desire for me that now has taken hold of me. And so when you see Paul, who is, you know, way, 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 way before any of that, just seeing that, hey, there's, there's these inordinate desires that if we don't get down deeper and deal with them, they can rise up and kind of start to take over our lives. And we say, wow, I don't know how to overcome this. I don't know how to grow through this. And that's why he says, well, you need to put it to death, not just kind of play around with it. You need to, you need to put that to death. Jesus said something very similar, talking about this whole area of life in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, he says, you have heard the command that says you must not commit adultery. So that's in the Bible, and a lot of people say, I understand that. He says, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, or literally your right eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And you go, wow, now I understand why Paul used such strong language, because Jesus did too. It's incredible that if, if your eye is causing you to sin or your hand is causing you to sin, it'd be better that you cut it off, that you gouged it out, and so that your, your whole body kind of wasn't infected or now thrown into hell. It's better to take this extreme, extreme, extreme um, tactic. And I remember when I was in school, I was doing a, uh, a thesis, and I was writing on this part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not just this small passage, but a bunch of them around it. And part of my thesis work was uh, I would write on a section, like a few verses like this, and then I would submit it to my supervisor, and we would sit down and he'd give me feedback so I could edit and revise and all that kind of stuff as we go. And so I remember coming to this passage, and I remember doing a whole bunch of research and reading, what is Jesus trying to say here? This is very extreme language. Why is he talking like this? Does he really mean this? And one of the theories is that when Jesus says, well, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, you should gouge it out, cut it off. Off, um, it's better than that than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And one of the theories is, well, of course, he's exaggerating. He's using hyperbolic uh, language in order to get his point across. And I went, that makes sense because Jesus probably doesn't want us actually, you know, tearing out part of our pieces of our body. And so I wrote something like that and I submitted it and I sat down with the supervisor and he came to it and, uh, you know, he said, you've written here about how Jesus is exaggerating. He's being, uh, using hyperbole. And he said, he's not. And I said, he's not? He goes, no, he's not. And I said, really? So do you think that Jesus really wants people if they are, oh, I'm, I'm lusting that I should gouge out my eye or I should cut off my hand? And he said, no. I'm like, oh. And that's as far as he took it. And it took me a while to go back and figure out, well, if those two options aren't what Jesus is saying, what is he saying? 
Because the professor said to me, he's really saying it would be better, like I think he's actually saying, it would be better for you if something causes you to sin, to cut off your hand and throw it away than just one part of your body, than your whole body thrown into hell. He says, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that is true. And then I realized if you go back and read it, it's because Jesus tells us where the problem is. And it's not actually your hand or your eye. We have to come back to verse 28. But I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Where's the problem? In their heart. So you don't need to cut out your eye, your hand. You need a heart transplant. You need to go deeper. We can't just address our issues and our problems and our temptations on the behavioral level. We can't just try harder to behave better. We must go deeper and address it on a heart level. And that is where uh, I think some of us miss. We go, I'm just trying hard. I'm just trying not to do something. And there's these inordinate desires deep within us that we're not identifying and uncovering and then starving so that they die. So we have two issues that we have to deal with if we're going to move forward. One is, as I've been saying, inordinate desires or these overwhelming desires that are kind of lodged deep in our heart that we can't deal with. Here's how if you, if you realize, oh, I've got a, man, I've got this temptation. I've got this problem in my life. Maybe it's with something sexual. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's anger. Maybe is something not on this list. Here's a question to ask yourself. What is, not just your desire, what is the root of your inordinate desire? So this, and if it's something deep-seated, something really deep, it might be something you need to talk about with someone who knows you super, super well. It might be that you need uh, a spiritual director to help you discern some of this stuff. It might be uh, a really good counselor that might help uncover this. But you're asking, what is it, not just, not just the behavior that's happening, but what is it? What's the underlying desire that's triggering that kind of behavior? So for many of us, these kind of things that, that we act out, our escapism. And we might ask ourselves, what am I escaping? What is it that maybe feels really terrible or a circumstance I don't want to be in that I'm not trying to mask with some behavior that makes me feel better or maybe quickly makes me feel better? These could be things like loneliness, could be even boredom. It could be an insecurity or stress. It could be depression. We talked about guilt and shame. Actually, there's a, a terrible cycle of guilt and shame where we feel bad and maybe we believe that we are something bad and then we try hard not to do bad things and then we fail. And then we feel really bad and guilty and we convince ourselves of the shame that this is who I am. And then I'm just going to try hard not to be that, but I am that. So I fall. And then we go through the, the, the cycle over and over and over and we never move forward. Instead, we have to go deeper and say, so what are some of those deep down heart issues, desires? For some of us, it's things like I really need acceptance. And my behavior up here, sometimes it's unhealthy, is really a cover-up because I'm trying to be accepted by other people. Or I need approval, or I need affirmation, or I'm struggling with self-worth and I'm looking for it some ways. These take some, uh, so, some, some, to be honest, very courageous, sometimes very difficult conversations or self-introspection to get to those points. This is why Paul and Jesus say, but listen, you need to kill what's killing you. You need to figure out uh, what's deep down in the root so then the things that are feeding those, uh, those inordinate desires and getting them bigger and bigger and bigger, you can say, I got to cut that off because we got to kill those things. So there might be thoughts that we need to cut off and say, no, 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 we're not nourishing those desires. There might be things from outside media, things that we're listening to, watching, putting into our mind that we go, mm, I got to starve that. I got to make sure that that thing is not fed. It might be our own thoughts. And this is where, again, a spiritual director, even a therapist might help you and to say, I need to change the way that I'm thinking to remind myself of who I really am. I need to uncover uh, my identity and who I'm living out because this is kind of the deep work that we need to get to. We need to kill what's killing us. 
And if we never go below the behavior part and get to that deep root and then make sure, you know, just like a plant, we say, it's not going to get any nourishment. We're not giving that sunlight. We're not watering that area of our life anymore. If we never go that, that deeper uh, spot in our lives, we're never going to be able to really kill those things that are killing us, that are hurting us, that are destructive in our lives. Now, our second issue, if we have inordinate desires, uh, our second issue would be idolatry. And if we go back uh, into that passage, we see this. Uh, Paul connects it specifically with greed. Uh, but I think we could, we could um, extrapolate that out to other things as well. So he says, don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. So here's the second thing we've done is we've taken good things, as Tim Keller uh, used to always say, idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate things. We've taken things that are not God's. And listen, this is the temptation of idolatry. It's not, this is mostly when we talk about sin, actually. Um, It's not that, oh, there's these bad, horrible, terrible things that we just can't help doing. Most of us, that's not what we're really struggling with. What we're struggling with is we're taking good things, but we're making them ultimate things, or we're taking them out of the capacity that they have. So think about, you know, those top two examples that Paul's given us, uh, sex and money. Those are good things. They can be wonderful, beautiful, amazing, good things in our lives. We need to make sure we have a good, healthy relationship with them. Because the most tempting thing to do is not to go and do terrible, bad things. It's to take good things and then exalt them to more than they can be, to depend on them more than they should be, to use them in un healthy ways to exalt them to gods. And so he says, people who find themselves, you're stuck in this unhealthy relationship with money. You're, you're greedy. It's all for you. Or you, you feel that, you know, if we go back to what's the root of that, maybe you've got some insecurity problems. I never feel like I have enough. So I've got to hoard, hoard, hoard. I've got to keep it all to myself. Maybe you've got, um, it's on the other end. Maybe you've got spending issues. It's, I feel bad about something in my life, but this makes me feel good when I spend, 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 maybe even spend money I don't have and rack up debts. Maybe it's a comparison issue. I'm looking at other people's lives and I don't feel like I've got a good life or I'm not as good as they are. or I'm not where they are or where I should be at this point in my life. And so I've got to try and make it look like I do. Whatever it is, you get to the root and then you say, what can fix that problem? And often uh, functionally we're saying money can fix that problem. Money can fix my security problem. I don't feel secure in my life. I feel vulnerable. I just got to pile up more and more and more and more money. And then functionally speaking, our money becomes an idol. And our decisions around how do I get more money and stockpile more money and hoard more money? Or how do I use this money to feel good? Or whatever it might be, it becomes an idol for us. That now I'm putting something in the place that, that really I, can only, I should only be able to depend on God. If I feel vulnerable, that my ultimate security is that I have a heavenly father who loves me and wants to provide for me. That's what Jesus said not far from this passage we read on lust. Don't you know that God need, knows what you need? He's got all the resources in the world. He cares for you. That's more secure than how much money you have in your bank account. You've got everything that you need in Christ. So now let's come back to what we read at the beginning, and then I'm going to do the bookend of these passages that we've read to talk about uh, as we go deeper to figure out our inordinate desires, try and root them out. Now, what does it look like uh, maybe once we've got there to say there's this area in my life that uh, is weak or I'm struggling, how do we now uproot the idol and replace it? So we come back to verse 1. Since, very important, you've been raised to new life with Christ. This is true. You can receive this. You can wake up to this reality. 
Since you've been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand, place of honor, place where he's respected, place of power and authority. Think about the things of heaven, not of earth. So we're now thinking, not that we're transported out of this earth, but we're now, our eyes are on a different kind of life, the kind of life Christ wants for us. You died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. You can't be crucified again by the accusations and the shame. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. What makes him great? What makes him amazing? What makes him famous? You can share in that. Now come down to verse 12. We've skipped all the sections that we've just read about, about killing those things that are killing you. Come to verse 12. He says again, since, since this is true, do you see how he's reminding us over and over and over? Because we're not building on our own effort. We're building off of grace of what God has already given to us in Christ. Since God chose you to be, listen to this, chose you to be. This is him saying, I want you, I know you, I'm taking you to be holy people he loves. You must close yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive everyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Okay, remember the sins. It's really important because I don't want you to walk away not understanding this. Since you've been raised with Christ, since God chose you, new life, this new resurrection life is the starting point, not the result of fighting temptation. You don't go, if I fight my temptation, if I can grow somehow, if I can move beyond the challenges I've been struggling with, then I'll have this new life. That's the result. No. Since this is already true, your starting point is you're loved, you're chosen, you've been raised with new life with Christ. You receive that. That is an identity that is forged by Christ, received by us, starting point of your life, not what you are working towards, what you are working from. Because when you get down deep to the roots and some of them are not so good, that's got to be the foundation. I've already got it. You have everything you need in Christ. Important. Now, where do we have to put in effort? Since you've been raised with Christ, now we're going we're gonna, to uh, elevate our sights and what we're seeking for in life to heavenly things, to the kind of life uh, that is hidden in Christ, in God, that we're going to live that out. It means we're going to seek, in Jesus' language, seek first the kingdom. In my life, what I want, I want God to get what God wants. I want to clothe myself in love. Um, I love, you know, Paul, interesting, he talks about this like clothes, like you're putting on these things. Um, so he talks about love. Before that, he talked about mercy, tenderheartedness, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Put on those clothes. And I first read that and I thought, oh, he's telling us to fake it. We'll just put something on so people think, oh, you look patient, wonderful. It's not what he's saying. Um, he's saying you need to now put on appropriate clothing, and this is the appropriate clothing of character to your already identity. So it's kind of like this. Let's say you became a firefighter. 
How do you become a firefighter? You can only become a firefighter, um, be, you gotta do all the training, you gotta learn how to fight fires, you gotta learn all the safety stuff, you gotta do all the physical testing, um, you, gotta, you gotta get yourself qualified to that. And then there's gonna come a time where they say, now you're a firefighter, you've done everything that you need in order to be a firefighter. And somewhere along the way, they're gonna go, so now in order to live out what you're gonna need to do to be a firefighter, you're already one, you're gonna need the helmet and the coat, you're gonna need the boat boots, all this stuff's gonna be important for you to live out what you already are. So Paul's saying here, it's not that once you put on these clothes, you're a firefighter. You're already one, but now these are the things that will be appropriate for you to now live out the identity you've already been given. This is what he's saying of the spiritual life as well. Put on these things. So how do we do that? Here's uh, number one. Take some time introspective to look where there's inordinate desires in your life. Starve them. Uh, Cut off anything that's giving them nutrients. Talk to somebody. And then secondly, the idolatry piece. We can't just take an idol out of our life. We need to replace it. So worship where you're weak. When you find there's a spot, oh, this is a spot I've been struggling with forever. This is a spot uh, I never seem to move forward. That worship is so powerful for us to change our lives. What do I mean by that? Because some of us come to church and we think, we talk about worship and we're really talking about singing. Oh, I love the worship. And we're talking about the music and the singing. Well, that's fine. Um, The music, that's one way to worship. And actually, this would be one great thing. If you're dealing with guilt and shame, there's certain songs that you can sing over and over and over. And the music helps to really implant it in our minds and our hearts. And that's one way you could do it. You say, man, I'm dealing with guilt. And you say, sing these songs, worship and and, uh, receive the forgiveness of God and and take that in for yourself. Receive it as a powerful thing. But worship we can do in every area of our lives. Worship is when we tell God by how we live, what he's worth, that he's worth everything to us. Worth-ship. God is worth everything. We put God on the throne of our lives. So what are some examples? You're struggling with greed. Maybe you say, I always feel vulnerable. I always feel like there's not enough. Um, I always feel like I have to hoard more. Um, and I worry, worry, worry about money. Give a bunch of money away to kingdom things. Make, uh, make generosity a regular rhythm of your life where you say, God, I'm giving you to this by giving to kingdom work, by giving to people who are in need, and to say, I want you to change my heart because I'm, I'm greedy for money. Help me be generous. God, you are generous. So I worship you through generosity. If you feel like, man, some of those triggers are coming from a loneliness in my life. I'm so lonely and I realize I'm acting out maybe in relationships or in some other way. Uh, Maybe it's time to worship by immersing yourself in Christian community by saying there's some people whose lives I'm going to invest in very carefully and very intentionally to build friendship, to care for them. If you feel the guilt and shame, soak yourself in forgiveness and offer that forgiveness to other people. You saw Paul talked about that because you've been forgiven. And so now one of the ways that we worship is we forgive people that have hurt us and it reminds us that we're forgiven. That changes who we are. If you're angry, uh, you know, drill down and figure out why am I angry? Is there something that I feel like uh, someone's attacking inside of me? That's why I'm angry towards them. And then maybe replace that and say, I'm going to worship God by encouraging other people and lifting them up. Put on clothes that fit as a child of God as you worship him. Replace your weakness. Replace those idols by worshiping God and who he is. See, the reason we don't change is not because we need to be more like someone else. It's because we need to be more like ourself. Ourself, the identity, not ourself on our own, our identity that's forged by Christ and received by us, given to us. 
because we're in Christ, because we're forgiven, because we're loved, because we have everything that we need. You can't be perfect on your own. I get it. But in union with Christ, we've been given everything that we need. So we need to set our hearts and our minds on that reality, on those truths, because perhaps slowly, certainly almost always, it's over time and incrementally, step by step, we are becoming like that which we worship. So our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can see who you are in Jesus and we can worship you. Worship the God who is love. God, today I pray that I suspect for some of us, there's some hard truths here uh, of desires and things that are very deep-seated in our lives. I pray that you give us the courage to surrender those things to you, to talk to somebody about them, to know that we already have your grace, we can receive your forgiveness, that we're loved that you've made us worthy, that we can receive all of those things. And I pray that today that would wash over people uh, who are feeling even right now like they need it so much. Remind them of those truths, that reality, the resurrection life offered and given to them through Christ. God, help us to see in all aspects and facets of our lives your presence and your character, that we could set our hearts and minds on you, that we might worship you and uproot anything else that that might be in that place that we're depending on so much for things that only you can give us. Would you just be so, um, so central in our lives that as we worship you, we would become more like you, more loving. We know we can't do that without you, but also we have our part. So God, do what we can't do and empower us to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.